0: Uh, four passages I'm going to read this morning. Romans 12, 1. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and 7. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. Ephesians 4:11 and 12. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ and finally 1 Peter 4:10 Just as each one has received a gift use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God Will you pray with me Heavenly Father we thank you for your infinite kindness to us uh, your kindness and your loving uh, gift to us for life and life everlasting in your son Thank you for this congregation. Thank you that we can worship you and share our gifts. Thank you for our brother Jeff. We just ask that you anoint him with your spirit to uh, give us the word you would have this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: You may be seated. Thank you, Jace. Jace serves as the vice chair of our elder board and uh, has been on the elder board for a long time. So on occasion, we would like to get our elders up here so you can meet them, know who they are, see them. And he uh, just does a fantastic job serving the board. Uh, just really quickly, I had to make one more announcement. Tomorrow, the pastors on staff we're going to be uh, we're going to be doing or going through a book. It's called Strange New World. I mentioned this last week by scholar and pastor Carl Truman, and that'll be our podcast. We won't be doing that live because we'll be recording it in the morning, but it should be online on our website front page. Uh, by the end of the day or the next day sometimes. So be looking for that on the front page of our website, christcommunity.faith, and follow along with us. We encourage you to think through the book and pick up the book. Go to amazon.com, pick it up, and think through these issues with us. Um, Basically, what he addresses here is how have we found ourselves or how have we gotten to where we are in our culture in terms of the sexual ethics, and in terms of uh, people's identity, uh, and stuff like that. So it is just going to be a fantastic book. Uh, There was a newlywed couple, newlyweds, and they were given the gift of going to Hawaii on their honeymoon, and so somebody gave them that gift, and, and also just all expenses paid. So when they got to their hotel, they checked in, and they checked into their hotel, and they realized, oh, it's a pretty meager hotel. Right? There was no bed in the hotel. So they slept the whole time they were there, the whole week they were there, they slept on this pull-out couch, this uncomfortable pull-out couch that was just in the hotel room there. And they also, to save money, they just went down the hall and went to the vending machine and got some snacks out of the vending machine. And the last night that they were there, the wife, she opened what she thought was a closet door. Turns out it wasn't a closet door at all, it was a sprawling suite filled with gifts wine and cheese and all kinds of wonderful gift baskets and everything, and they could have spent their honeymoon enjoying the gifts. And so the point of the parable is this. You can spend your life totally unaware of what God has provided just on the other side of the door. God's gifts for your life can be right under your nose, and you just haven't discovered them. And that's what Paul is going to be talking to us about today. When we look at the text today, we're going to primarily be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And Paul has already told us, Paul has already told us what kind of saving grace we have. You and I have saving grace. And then he also told us that we have sanctifying grace, the kind of grace that forms us into the image and likeness of Jesus And now he's going to talk to us about serving grace. He's going to talk to us us about what kind of serving gifts for the body of Christ that God has put into our lives. And so you can follow me today with this insert in your outline. Uh, It's two-sided today because I gave you sort of a gift list here of the things that he mentions, some of the things that he mentions, and I just wanted you to have some working definitions of them. We'll go through those here in a few minutes. So this week, we're going to look at the ways in which God has uniquely gifted each of us to serve the body of Christ through our spiritual gifts, and we'll discuss their nature, their operation, and give you some, some opportunity at the end to, to figure out how God has gifted you and what gifts He has for you. Now, we can't cover everything that Paul mentions uh, with respect to this subject. That's a sermon series in and of itself. So today is going to be a bit of a flyover, but the overarching theme 1 Corinthians 12 is the need for unity in the body of Christ. And the way that God accomplishes the unity of the body of Christ for the building up of the entire body is that he gives each individual member of the body spiritual gifts to, for the common good, for the commonwealth of Christ. And so that's his overall picture there. So Paul's chief analogy that he uses is just absolutely brilliant. He uses it in first. Corinthians 12 and also Romans chapter 12, and he talks about the body. He uses it again in Ephesians chapter 4. He talks about having a body and how all of the individual parts of the body contribute to the whole. So we'll be looking at that today. And Paul also stresses the importance of humility, selfless service to others, and the desire... For the greater gifts in the midst of the public assembly. So when he says eagerly desire greater gifts, the context there is eagerly desire the greater gifts that God wants and the public gathering for the building up of all. That's what he's talking about. Now, a key passage is 1 Corinthians twelve, four through 7, because Paul actually gives us his definition for spiritual gifting. And this is what he says. He says, now, there are different gifts, but the same spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord, and there are different activities. But the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. This is their purpose now. And so just two quick, big observations about those verses. Firstly, notice how thoroughly Trinitarian they are. Notice how thoroughly Trinitarian they are, and notice how the trinity, the doctrine of the trinity that's in these verses is very incidental. It's very incidental. He says, we're given these gifts, a variety of gifts, but it's the same Holy Spirit. We're given a variety of different ministries, but it's the same Lord Jesus and different activities, but it's the same God who is Father over all, right? Thoroughly Trinitarian. Secondly, notice the spiritual gifts have some visible expression, some visible expression. Now, scholars have two minds relative to these words in these verses because this is Paul's definition. Paul wants to communicate to us what they are. And so, some scholars think that what Paul is describing here really is a taxonomy, something like different categories, and he's just trying to categorize where everything we do in the church fits. Some things are activities, some things are gifts, some things are manifestations, some things are this or that. And I, I think that's probably not quite right. I'm in the other camp. Some scholars uh, think that what Paul is describing here is he's using different terms, he's using different semantics, but really those different words connote essentially the same concept. It's like uh, the word shady. Shady. The word shady can have a denotative meaning and it can have a connotative meaning. So if you came over to my house this summer and we were sitting under my marvelous pergola that I built for my wife... You might say, wow, this pergola is really shady. And in that context, what do you mean? It really provides a lot of cover from the sun, right? But if I walk up to you and I say, hey, man, you see that guy over there in church? He's pretty shady. And you respond to me, yeah, he does provide adequate cloud cover. I think he's... (laughs) I'm like, no, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, he's kind of sketchy. He's kind of uh, suspicious. You know, I start using words that mean essentially the same thing. Now, each one of those words and their own have their own definition, their own denotation, but in this context, they all connote the same thing. I'm talking about someone who's kind of suspicious, kind of slippery. Okay, you get the point. Yes. So, um, So I personally think that's what we're dealing with here in this passage. I I think what we're dealing with in the passage is Paul just trying to use different terms that have some different nuances, but they all point to this one idea. I think it's in verse 7. I think that's his definition for a spiritual gift. They are manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are given to each individual in the church for the commonwealth of Christ, for the building up of the body politic okay? And so, let's look at some of these key terms that he uses. Let's, let's just break it down a little bit. I want, to, I want you to see this. So, first of all, the word gifts, plural. It's the word charis. Uh, there's a little family of terms here. Charis, charisma, charismata. Obviously, we get our words, our English words, from this Greek term or these Greek terms, and in his various letters, Paul uses three interrelated terms. These three interrelated terms meaning that which is freely and graciously given, an exceptional act of generosity or beneficence. So if you've been graced with salvation, guess what? You're a charismatic. You, you believe that God has gifted you and graced you with the Holy Spirit in your life. Uh, and now, now this word is modified with the word or the term Spiritual. Spiritual, and this is the Greek term pneumatikos, and it means that which derives or pertains to the Spirit. Now, in in Paul's writings, that which derives or pertains to the Spirit, the, the word Spirit is capitalized here. It means the Holy Spirit. So, the vast majority of times that Paul refers to spiritual, it means of the Holy Spirit, the vast majority of times. It also can refer to that which belongs to a transcendent order of being that is spiritual, not material right? Pretty simple. And also ministries. This is the word diakonia the word diakonia And this is uh, the word from which we get the word deacon. The word deacon just means servant. It just means minister. And diakonia means any kind of service rendered that furthers the local church's mission. And so what's our mission here? It's upward, inward, outward. Our mission is is to make disciples of Jesus who gather for worship in spirit and in truth. That's John 4. And when we gather those disciples, we make those disciples and gather them into the public assembly for worship in spirit and in truth, we want to grow them in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 2 Peter 3.18. And then we want those disciples who are growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ to go back out into the world and reach their community and reach the world for Jesus. Make more disciples. Fulfill the Great Commission. That's Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And so, the ministries are given to help us achieve the mission, the mission of the church. Next, he mentions activities. This is the word energima, uh, from which we get the word energy. That's just to help you kind of... uh, Stick it in your mind there, but this word means activities. It's the outward expression of an inner capacity or inner capability. It's the effective outworking of an inner work of the Spirit. So Spurgeon famously said, C.H. Spurgeon once famously said, whatever the Spirit has worked in, you and I must work out. But it turns out we learn right here that even the outworking of whatever the Spirit has worked in, even the activities, the ministries themselves, are also gifts of the Spirit. They are also manifestations of the Spirit. Those are God's gifts to us as well. And then lastly, he mentions the word manifestations. Manifestations. This is the word phonerosis. And this family of words is the word from which we get the word epiphany. Right? Epiphany. And it means to make visible or known what has been hidden or undisclosed or previously unknown. So all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that come from the Holy Spirit to us... They're given to our spirit, and they remain discreet and unknown until they're expressed or made visible in the life of the church. So I think now we have a working definition, don't we? Here's the definition. Spiritual gifts are heavenly resources. That's what they are. They come from God. They're to us. They're heavenly resources given to each individual believer for the welfare and edification of the body of Christ made apparent by the outworking of the various ministries and activities of a local church. And so while God's gifts are spiritual in nature, they are made visible through either the ordinary or the extraordinary expressions that we find that God gives us within the life of the local church. So if you turn your uh, page over here, we're going to go through some of the ordinary and extraordinary expressions of the Holy Spirit in our midst, We're going to go through them and look at them in particular. But before I do that, let me just say four quick things. First and foremost, there is no exhaustive list in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, Peter, Thessalonians, there is no exhaustive list. All the lists that we have are examples of gifts of the kinds of things the Lord does in the life of the church, right? Right? Secondly, Paul makes no distinction between the ordinary and the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit in terms of being from the Spirit. All of them are spiritual, all of them derive from the Holy Spirit and are given to the life of the church for its edification and its growth and its upbuilding. And then, fourthly, Paul's entire idea is that not everyone has all the gifts, right? There is no one who is the total package. The only person who's the total package in the church is Jesus. (laughs) He's the only one who has them all, right? Paul's entire point in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is this, in using the body analogy, is that it takes an entire church to exercise all or even part of these gifts. So no one person has them all. And in addition to that, no one gift is for all. No one gift is for everyone. So I I want to show you that. Now, this is why I have to tell you why I'm not a Pentecostal. Or I should say, actually, in what sense I am not a Pentecostal. Because I resonate with their passion for God. Very much so. When I attended Western Assembly of God In Richmond, Virginia, when I was a teenager, I loved that church. I still love that church. When I go back and visit Virginia on the very rare occasion that I do, I go back to that church because I love that church. The pastors were educated. They were grounded in the word, and they loved Jesus. And let me tell you something. Pentecostals love the Great Commission. You will not find a group of people in the world who care more about the Great Commission than they do. And so, in many respects, I would say, yeah, I'm a Pentecostal, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) I do, I resonate with so much of their passion, their belief that the Holy Spirit is not a dove on a stained glass window, that he's not a doctrine you just learn about in Sunday school. The Holy Spirit is God's present, transforming presence in the life of the church. So, I resonate with much of what they teach, but there's one sense in which I could say, I'm definitely not a Pentecostal, and that is their doctrine, that every person in the church, every individual in the church, should speak in tongues. That that's the one gift that God has for all of us. And more specifically, they believe that speaking in tongues is the evidence, the initial physical evidence of the baptism, what they call the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which in in their way of thinking is a separate second work of grace. So I would say in that sense, I just don't agree with that. I I, I would say that Paul has already said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 at the end of the chapter that not every gift is for every person. Not everyone has every gift. Are all prophets? Do all prophesy? Do all work miracles? Uh, do all have words of knowledge? No. His answer is no. And he says, do all speak in tongues? And the answer is, no, they don't. The whole point of 1 Corinthians 12, again, is to say there is one body, many members, and we all have a different gift. We all have been blessed with something to edify and bless the church with. I would tell you this this is also why I'm not a charismatic. Now, there are lots of charismatic. This is slightly different now. This this may seem like splitting hairs, but it really isn't. Um, There are lots of charismatics who do not speak in tongues. They do not claim to have that gift. But they do claim to prophesy, and they do claim to work miracles, or they do claim to have... Uh, literally a daily word of knowledge, right? And, and so I would say I also resonate with their concerns. I also resonate with many of their interests. Uh, they also are very passionate about the presence of the Lord in the midst of the church. And so with my charismatic brothers and sisters, I would just say Paul seems to Clearly say, as clearly as I think Paul knows how, not every gift is for every Christian. So not everyone's supposed to prophesy. And I think that's just a misunderstanding of a passage in 1 Corinthians 14 where he says, so then all can prophesy. He's already established in that context that there are certain individuals who've been given that gift, and it's not to be in the church more than three, and it's to be sequential. And so he's already set parameters on that, right? Right? So, I would just disagree with them on that matter. I would also disagree with their doctrine of ongoing revelation. Now, when I say ongoing revelation, what I mean is capital R, Revelation, because Paul's going to use the word revelation several times here between chapters 12 and chapters 14. He'll use that word several times, but he never means doctrinal revelation. He doesn't, because he tells us what it is. And so this idea that there's this ongoing revelation in which we are now adding new doctrine to the Bible. Now, if I were to call up my, my very, very good friends who are charismatic and still go to charismatic churches and say, what is the only infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God? They would say, the Bible, without flinching, without batting. They would say, batting an eye. They would say, the Bible, Old and New Testament. Great. Amen, brother. Then I would go to church with that friend. And they would practice something different. I would hear visions or I would hear dreams and interpretations of dreams in which they are adding all kinds of new content to the book of Revelation. And, and most often when I was in the charismatic movement, most often it took the form of sort of a tour of heaven. Have you heard of this? You may see these folks. They're all over YouTube right now. And what they claim is that God has given them uh, new revelation. Revelation of what heaven is like. So they go to the book of Revelation, they fill in all the blanks. It's like, no, that's new doctrine actually. And so understand that when the Holy Spirit reveals a message to us, when the Holy Spirit reveals his will, when the Holy Spirit reveals anything to us, it's always direction, not doctrine. It's direction, not doctrine. The Holy Spirit will tell you, don't go to Mexico, go to China if he wants you to be a miss- missionary. Missionary. The Holy Spirit may give you very specific direction about your life, but he's not going to give you new doctrine, period. So that's the sense in which I would not be considered a Pentecostal and I would not be considered a charismatic. However, having said that, I am a continuationist. I am a continuationist. What is this? Well, historically, the church has fallen into two camps on the matter of spiritual gifts and their ongoing nature. The one is what is called cessationism. Cessationism, cessationism is a belief. It came along much later in the church's history, but it's a belief that spiritual gifts have ceased with the apostles. Spiritual gifts have passed away and they're relegated to the first century now. And it's really not appropriate for churches to be looking into the Bible for spiritual gifts or to be teaching on it. And that's called cessationism. They believe the gifts have ceased. I don't hold that view. I don't hold that view. A continuationist, by contrast, is the belief that spiritual gifts have continued beyond the first century, and they were indeed meant for the present upbuilding and edification of the church. And I hold this view of continuationism for two reasons. For for two reasons. The first one is it's biblical. And the second one is I think this has been the historical experience of the church. Let me show you the biblical reasons. First Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. This is what Paul says. This is how he opens his book to the Corinthians. He says, I always thank my God for you because of the grace. There's that word charis again. Charis. Of God given to you in Christ Jesus that you were enriched in him in every way. In what? In speech and in knowledge. These are the very gifts that he's going to have to bring correction to now in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14. These are the gifts that he thinks God they have, but they're not operating them properly. Verse 6, he says, in this way, the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift, there's the word charisma, as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the phrase revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ is, in the New Testament, technical language for the second coming of Jesus. Revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says in Titus 2.13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious revelation of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he refers to the second coming. And then he says, he will also strengthen you till the end. The word here is us. And it's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 24. Repeatedly in Matthew 24, that's the Olivet Discourse. And that's what's called the end times discourse when Jesus is telling them about his second coming. And he says, and this gospel will be preached in the whole world to all the nations of the earth, and then the telos, the end, will come. And then he says you will, he will also strengthen you till the end so that you will be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord is the eschatological day when Christ returns, and he rewards the faithful, those who are filled with faith. He rewards them with salvation, and he judges the wicked the unrighteous. So, Paul already tells the Corinthians that they're not going to lack any spiritual gift until Jesus returns that they need for the building up of the church. He picks the subject up again in 1 Corinthians 13. Fast forward now to 1 Corinthians 13. He picks the subject back up and now what he wants to do is he wants to tell them when these things are going to pass away. Verse 8, he says, love never ends. Love will never pass away. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, here he doesn't mean knowledge in general. He means the gift of knowledge. It will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect, that is the teleos, that's another form of the word telos, comes, the partial will come to an end. Verse 12, for we, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then when? When the perfect comes. We will see face-to-face, this phrase, seeing God face-to-face, is in Revelation 22.4. And in Revelation 22, that's the end of the book. That's when believers, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, are now in the direct and full beam, the high beams of the Lord's presence, and they see him face-to-face. So understand, there is no biblical warrant and no biblical reason to think that the spiritual gifts that Paul lists here have passed away in the first century. There isn't any. So let's look at some of the ordinary and some of the more extraordinary ones. Okay, number one, he lifts the gift of administration. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 8. Well, this means to excel in organizational management. It means exactly what it looks like. And so we have people in this church who are gifted administrators. One of them is Beth Wicklin. Uh, she is our church administrator, and she is superhumanly gifted in administration. I marvel at her gifts. Uh, we have several people in our congregation like this. I think the chairman of our board, Alan, is also a gifted administrator, and it's a, it's just a joy to watch that gift in service. I think Jace also is a gifted administrator as well, and it's just fun watching people who have this gift. Uh, they're just amazing, and also the gift of leadership. He mentions in several places in the New Testament the gift of leadership, which is the ability to manage the, fa- the affairs of the local church or to manage a ministry within the local church. So some of you lead, minist- lead ministries within the local church, and you're just a natural-born leader, and God has given you that spiritual gift. And then he mentions generosity, which is the uh, ability to give sacrificially and cheerfully. On a weekly basis, when I look at our giving statements, I am always just filled with holy awe. I am just filled with awe that we have such a generous congregation. I believe it's not just individuals within this church who have a gift of generosity, but I believe this church has the spiritual gift of generosity within the body of Christ. I mean, it's remarkable. And the gift of hospitality This is an unusual capacity for social interaction, socially warm and welcoming people who are just able on first contact to make others feel welcome and warm, and you know who you are. You know who you are. We know who you are, too, because you're just so good at it that every time I talk to you, someone is over your house, someone you don't know, someone in the neighborhood, or someone you just met at church. What a wonderful, wonderful gift. These gifts make the church go round, folks. The gift of mercy the gift of mercy. This is the ability to demonstrate unusual acts of compassion. I said in the first service that I think that foster parents have this gift. I don't know how they can't. And so a foster parent came up to me after the church service and said, I don't have the gift of mercy. I have the gift of patience and faith. And I said, well, good. Good. But I just think it's tremendous. I think it's tremendous to be able to welcome new kids like into your home on a regular basis to cycle them through your home to just take care of them for a season and show them the love of Jesus. That is an amazing gift of mercy. Praise God for that gift. I think of Kevin Grimes. Kevin Grimes, he may not be here today probably because he's going over to Romania to pick up a new kid. He is just amazing. And the gift of faith. Well, this is an unusually high degree of faith or trust to accomplish God's will. These folks just have a larger tolerance for risk. And you need these people in the life of the church because the way God has wired most of us is for management. The way God has wired most of us is to just keep keep the tires on the bus, just do whatever we're doing for the excellence and glory of God, right? But there are some people who sit on the elder board thank God, who have the gift of faith, and they say, hey, guys, listen, we can take that hill. We can do it. We can go. We can move in that direction, and the gift of faith is just marvelous. And then there are words of exhortation, which means to strongly urge someone in the right course of action. I I think I have this gift. Uh, What are you laughing at? Uh, I think my wife would agree. I have this gift. (laughs) It's just, it's encouragement. It is encouragement, but it's just a, it's a, Fastball, right? It's just that ball has a little heat on it. That's all it is. Okay, feel encouraged? Good, yeah. And where are we at? Okay, then there are the distinguishing of spirits. I, I think I have this one too. I do, because uh, the distinguishing of spirits is not just a general discernment. It's not just a general discernment. The distinguishing of spirits is the ability. As far as I could tell biblically, to distinguish between whether or not a message is from the Lord or not from the Lord, or, and, and then what spirit the message is from. So it could be just well wishing. It could just be from your human spirit. I just feel like the Lord is telling me this for you today. And when you tell me that, I go, oh, that's you. Thank you. Or maybe it could be from a demonic source, an evil spirit. Uh, just to give you an example of this, when I, years ago when I was a pastor, of a church plant in Post Falls, Idaho. I was leading a church, kind of launched the church. It sort of exploded at the beginning, but we had this gymnasium, very similar to this actually, about this size that we, that we set up, we, we would do set up and take down church every week. And so I would have these seats sitting out there, but there were bleachers in the back, sort of went up the wall, bleachers. And then the front door to get into the sanctuary, the auditorium, was actually up front, where the stage was. So, so anyone who came in late, we, we all saw you, right? And so then people stopped coming. And, um, but we had this couple that came in one Sunday. A few months into this church plant, this couple came in, and everybody turned over and saw them, and it was during my message. And they looked perfectly normal. They just looked like a suburban couple that lived in Coeur d'Alene. But something in my spirit just tightened up. Like I could just feel, oh, something's not right about them. And I watched them walk all the way to the back, and they sat on the bleachers in the back. They listened to the rest of my sermon, and during my sermon, I kept thinking, something is not right about them. And no sooner did I say, amen, have a nice day, and come down the stage, they were on me. And this is the first thing that they said to me. uh, We've been given the spiritual gift of demon exorcism, and we... While we were sitting in the back, we saw all the demonic strongholds of the people in your church, and we'd like to come and offer our services next week and uh, deliver your congregation from their demonic activity in their life. Now, normally, what I would say is, I would say, Well, we're not going to do that. But if you want to meet this week for coffee, I can explain our vision, our mission, and our values. But I didn't say that. I used my gift of exhortation. (laughs) And I just said, Get out of my church. I literally said it like that, and don't ever come back. And they left, and they never did. And it's because the Holy Spirit gave me a distinguishing of spirits. And I think this is what Paul is referring to. Now, in Corinth, you would have to have this gift because there are so many crazy cultists that would come into your midst in the public service that you could hear all kinds of stuff that you would have to have the ability to discern between and so he gives us distinguishing spirits. He also gives us a words words of wisdom. Now, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, he's already told us what wisdom is. He's already defined it. He's already said the wisdom is the gospel. You see, the world thinks the gospel is foolishness. But the gospel is God's wisdom. And so now, a word or an utterance of wisdom is going to be something the Holy Spirit drops into your heart for somebody somebody else to encourage them along the gospel path, to encourage them in gospel values, to encourage them in the gospel. And then he gives us gifts of miracles and healings, gifts of miracles and healings. And these are instances of the supernatural or supernatural healing and miraculous provision. This is not a gift given to an individual, but gifts, plural, given to the body of Christ in response to prayer and obedient faith. So, here we see that Paul changes the formula a little bit in the text. And what he says is, he says, God gives this one a gift, God gives that one a gift, and then he gives the whole body of Christ, everybody, gifts of healings and miracles. So, understand the church does not have any faith healers in it today other than Jesus. Jesus is the only faith healer in the church. And so God doesn't give this, people, this gift to people so they can walk around throwing their coats on people and blowing on them. Right? He doesn't do that. What he does is from January to December, God gives us lots of miracles, doesn't he? God answers prayer. God calls us to step out in obedience. We do, and God does the miracle. God is still very much active in our lives. He's still very much active in our church. And there are lots of ways in which God heals people, and He also gives them gifts of miracles. He answers prayer. Praise God. And then He mentions words of knowledge, words of knowledge. That's the occasional revelation of something undisclosed. It is revelation. And this is, again, never doctrinal, it's directional. It can manifest as a divinely given intuition or insight into someone's life. And its purpose, Paul says in chapter 14, verse 3, is for encouragement, consolation, and strengthening, just like prophecy. Prophecy involves this gift as well. Its purpose is for consolation, encouragement, strengthening. I'll give you an example of this. Some of you have told me stories sitting right here in in this church, in a service where the Lord has dropped something very, a very strong impression into your heart and then for someone, and then you made a beeline to them to tell them, listen, this is what I feel like the Lord's saying to me, to you, and I just want to pray for you. I just want to let you know the Lord sees you. The Lord, and, and I think that's wonderful. I think that, that's a great expression and application of this gift. When it happened to me, Uh, years ago. It's happened to me lots of times, but I'll give you the best illustration I can think of. I was leading a training, and I was a brand new discipleship pastor at at a church, and I had all my leaders in the room, and we were going to train, go to lunch, and then come back and do some more training. And so I had written a script. I had written a manuscript, and I was teaching off the manuscript, and in there I had just written in a little piece, listen, If your marriage is hurting right now, because most of my leaders were couples, if your marriage is hurting, take a season off. It's perfectly okay for you to take a little hiatus from ministry, work on your marriage, because listen, we minister out of our marriage, and if our marriage is unhealthy, our ministry is unhealthy. That was all I wrote. That's, That's the only point that I made in there. But then as I was sharing that in the training course, God dropped into my mind a picture, and I said this. And I said, if you spend all of your time as the wife just out in the garden and in your craft hobbies, and you spend all your time in the garden, and you as the husband spend all your time out in the shop working on your 69 El Camino, your hot car, when do you have time to come together? When do you have time to to minister together and work on your relationship? And as soon as I said that, this couple in the training burst into tears immediately at the same time. I had to... Stop the training, send everyone out to lunch. And then they came up to me and she said, How did you know? I said, How did I know what? She said, We just had the biggest fight of our marriage this morning. And that fight was over. Me spending way too much time in my hobbies, which involves my crafts and gardening, and him spending way too much time in the garage working on his 69 El Camino. And we stood there honestly just in a state of holy awe. We were like, Woo, woo. God is here, like God is speaking to, to you. And I said, then I used the gift of exhortation, and I said, well, well, get out of here. Go, go to lunch. Go on a date. You know, go, go spend some time together, and they did. And so the point here is that sometimes the Lord can give you knowledge about the condition of someone's heart, and you can reveal it to them, and it can be a tremendous encouragement, consolation, strengthening. Of that fellow believer now how does God revealing that do any damage or any violence to the Bible it doesn't do any because it was directional not doctrinal I wasn't saying well this is what it's going to be like to swim in the crystal sea you know the, the <laughs> oh gee okay and the Lord also gives us words of prophecy what are these well folks to the best I can figure out in Scripture I've done my diligence. Not only have I thought about this for many years, but I've thought about it very intently over the last couple weeks or so. Uh, This is intelligible spirit-enabled proclamation. Prophecy is preaching. Most of what uh, gets called prophecy in the church today is is nothing of the sort. Prophecy is in the context of preaching, and it often can involve a word of wisdom. It can involve, involve a word of knowledge, but it's Preaching with special insight, intended for the strengthening, encouragement, and consolation of the body. So, oftentimes, as a preacher, what I do is exactly what I just described to you. I will prepare my notes and then I will ask the Lord Lord, would you just drop something in my, my mind today? Would you just speak to me? Let, let me be a vessel to speak directly into the heart or the mind some, uh, of our people, some consolation some encouragement let me build them up and i'll ask the lord to do this and and sometimes he does he doesn't do it every week but sometimes he does and it's really fun it's really fun so this is preaching this is preaching um now why am i not a super fan of people who have microphones or churches that have microphones up front on the stage where people can come up and literally interrupt the worship service with their prophecies I'll tell you why I'm not a super fan of that. One, I, don't, I think that's a misapplication and a misunderstanding of what Paul is talking about here, but also because I believe it's super dangerous. And the reason, reason I believe it's super dangerous is because I, I've, just, I've been in ministry for 30 years, and I've just met some really weird people. And I think just having an open mic up on the stage or an open mic, I went to one church where they had the open mics in the aisle, and people would just literally line up and deliver their words a prophecy. And many of them were just strange. It was famine and judgment and your best life now. You know, it was always something like that. I had a person who came up to me uh, years ago when I was at the same church, uh, and she wanted to give me a word from the Lord for me. And now I'm, I'm very open to that. I'm very open to that. Remember, I also have the gift of distinguishing of spirits. So uh, just be careful if you do that. No, so she came up to me, and she said... Um, I believe the Lord showed me a a word for you and I was like lay it on me and she said I she said I could see you like you were a puppet a marionette on strings and Satan was just pulling the strings and you were dancing around like a (laughs) marionette you know that's my best marionette and uh, and I said oh really that sounds a little strange Uh, you think I I'm under the control of Satan she said yes And I said, so what's the message? What's the encouragement? What's the consolation? She said, you need to cut the strings. I was like, okay. And I said to Rose, I said, Rose, thank you. I'm going to go home and 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Corinthians 14. I'm going to test this and hold fast to what is good. (laughs) That's what I'm going to do. And you would have thought that I told her she was not a Christian anymore. She went, well, thank you. You know, like she left. And then she came back a couple of weeks later and said, "Uh, what did you do with the word? I said, I tested it and found that it wasn't biblical and it wasn't for me. It wasn't in line with my intuition. And she said, that's fine. She said, you know, in all of my years of practicing this, you are the first person who has ever told me they would test one of my words. And she said, I just always thought that if God was giving me a word, it just was the word of the Lord. And I said, well, you're welcome. Now you know, it's not. (laughs) Right? Now, that doesn't mean the Lord won't speak to you. It doesn't mean that he won't. It's just that this word had to be tested. And so she had to learn what the New Testament teaches about this. These things have to be brought to the light of Scripture. They have to be held up to the light of Scripture, and they have to be consistent with, the whole, with what the Holy Spirit is saying to the individual. Oftentimes they do. Now, can you imagine if I had this person come up and just extemporaneously prophesy in the middle of service? And by the way, she didn't believe Christian doctrine. She attended one of my doctrine courses that I was teaching, and halfway through it, when we were talking about the doctrine of God, I explained the difference between the the Judeo-Christian view of God, that God is an infinite personal creator of the universe. He is the creator of the universe, and he is transcendent from creation. That is to say, he is not the same as his creation. And then I explained that that's different than pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that everything is God, and panantheism is the belief that God is everything. And after I got done explaining that to her, she came up to me after the uh, teaching, after the class, and she said, I just realized today that my entire Christian life I've been a panantheist. Now just imagine if I had that, per- that open mic and this person was allowed to come up and prophesy nonsense to the church. That would be very Very dangerous. So for the same reason, I wouldn't let just anybody come up and preach a spontaneous message to the church. I wouldn't do that with prophecy either. Never. You have to labor among us. I have to know you. I have to know what you know and what you don't know. I have to know what your training is. And so that here is what I think Paul is referring to when he talks about the gift of prophecy. He also refers to different kinds of tongues, different manners of tongues, 1 Corinthians 12.10. Now, as best I can determine, tongues, speaking in tongues, is a mode of prayer and praise and thanksgiving. That's what he calls it in 1 Corinthians 14. He calls it prayer. He calls it a mode of praise and a mode of thanksgiving directly from the Spirit, bypassing the intellect. That seems to be what he's describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And this is a language that is, either, uh, that is not previously learned or studied by the speaker. And this language can involve normal human languages, such as we see in Acts chapter 2, what Paul refers to as the tongues of men in 1 Corinthians 13, 1a, or unknown heavenly speech forms, what Paul refers to as the tongues of angels in 1 Corinthians 13, 1b. Uh, Paul makes it clear that this gift is not preferable in the public worship service. And he says you can't do it unless you can guarantee there's an interpreter present. But how can you guarantee that? Because the interpretation always follows the speaking in tongues, doesn't it? I remember I said that to a Pentecostal friend of mine, and she says, You don't guarantee it, God does. And I said, Good, but he didn't give the command to God, he gave it to the Corinthians. He told the Corinthians, you have to make sure that if this gift, on the chance that this gift is used in the public ceremony, the public worship service, that it has to be attended with the gift of interpretation. Someone has to interpret this, but how can you do that since interpretation is always post-speaking in tongues? I think what he's doing here is he's very slyly setting the bar so high that they can't use it in public. They can't use it in the worship service. He doesn't want them to. He wants them speaking intelligibly. He wants them speaking in a known human language so that minds and hearts can be edified and built up. So it is, it is essentially a mode of prayer for the private life. Next, he mentions office gifts in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. He says that he himself, God, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. So the apostles in the first century were essentially of two varieties. You have the capital A apostles, right? The capital A apostles, Paul identifies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, he mentions the 12 and then himself. And those apostles, what he says about himself is, he is the last person to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. And since he is the last person to have seen Jesus risen, bodily risen from the dead, that ends the gift of apostleship in the church in that sense, that authoritative sense. But then you also have other apostles. You have uh, Sylvanus and Timothy. You have Andronicus and Junius. Uh, You have some other passages in which people are referred to as apostles, and this is little a. Little a apostles. Now these people were very instrumental, very involved in planting or encouraging churches on foreign soil. So What do we call those people today? We call them missionaries. The word missionary is not in the New Testament. So why are we using that term? Well, we use it because the word apostle carries a little too much freight, doesn't it? (laughs) Doesn't it? It carries a little too much freight. So we're uncomfortable with this word apostle, but really what the missionary does today in the world is a continuation of the apostolic function of planting churches and encouraging and strengthening congregations in the world on foreign soil we still do it. What about prophets? Um, I don't know. I don't know about that, but uh, let's continue. He talks about evangelists and teachers, pastors who are also teachers. These people are here to equip the saints uh, for the work of the ministry. And so, the whole purpose that God gave these gifts to the body of Christ is to equip it until we all reach the unity of the faith, until the body is fully, fully built up in Christ. Now look at Ephesians 2.20. He tells us, So then, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, Jew Jew, Jew and Gentile alike. And he says in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. With Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so apostles and prophets have in a sense, at least in an official authoritative sense, passed away with the first century. They have ceased, those two offices, at least in that sense. We don't have any apostles and prophets today in the the New Testament sense or the Old Testament sense because they were foundational to the life of the church. And you don't lay a foundation on the 18th floor. And you don't lay it again on the 37th floor. You lay it at the beginning. And so they functioned uh, in, in a certain authoritative role that no one today has. So then the question becomes, should I seek the gifts? And the answer is no, you shouldn't. When Paul says, pursue the way of love and eagerly desire the greater gifts, and he's talking about the public worship assembly. He's talking about the church seeking or desiring the greatest gifts that we can that contribute to the whole in public worship. And instead of seeking the gifts, what I would encourage you to do is seek the gift giver. Seek the giver. Seek the one who is responsible, responsible for distributing the gifts as he sees fit. And lose yourself in Jesus, because when you lose your life in Jesus, gifts will emerge in your life. You will begin to see ways in which God has blessed you and helped you and empowered you and enabled you to bless the body of Christ. So how do we do this? Well, the first way I think we do this is we start with being informed about spiritual gifts. I'll give you just a few books today. You can write these down. The first one is one that has come to mean a lot to me, and that is God's Empowering Presence by Dr. Gordon Fee. He goes through every New Testament passage in the New Testament, in the New Testament that Paul, where Paul um, mentions the Holy Spirit. And essentially what he does in this book is he looks at Paul's doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and also Paul's expectation of how the Holy Spirit applies and is poured out in the life of the church today. This is a powerful, powerful book. That has been a game changer for me. Another one that I love is Eric Metaxas's book, Miracles. What they are, why they happen, and how they can change your life. I've just found tremendous encouragement in this book. It's very good. And I want to encourage you to pick this up. This book will fire you up. You'll be ready to pray and ask God for miracles once you read it. And then another book, which I just can't recommend highly enough, is this book called Father, Son, and the Other One, <laughs> written by yours truly. And when I wrote this book, I tried to imagine teaching a person or helping a person who was starting with square at square one, just starting from zero, to say, how do I begin a life in the Holy Spirit? How do I begin the Spirit-filled life? So I try to take them from zero all the way to the end to help them to see the Holy Spirit does a lot more than just give you spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit wants to transform you into the image and likeness of Jesus. And then how do we open ourselves up to what the Lord wants to do in our life? So wherever books are sold, you can find those. And then try a self-assessment try a self-assessment, christcommunity.faith. You can find on our website a link to spiritual gifts assessments. And that assessment will really help you to discern how it is that God has wired you for service in the body, how God has wired you for service in the body. But to be honest with you, you have to explore opportunities to serve, and you have to do that in community. Nobody discovers their spiritual gifts... Alone. Nobody discovers their spiritual gifts by themselves. I'll close with this story really quick. In college, I was a weirdo. And in college, I did not celebrate Christmas. I was not against Christmas. I did not have like a theology of not celebrating Christmas. I just didn't do it. I was often alone during Christmas, or I would spend time with my friends at their, their homes. And my Poor little mom wanted me to have gifts to open every Christmas. So she would send from Virginia all the way to Seattle, she would send me a big old box in October of gifts that were wrapped, Christmas gifts, a box full of Christmas gifts, and I would open them in October, all by myself, my lonesome self, in my room opening my Christmas presents, (laughs) and she had intended for me to open them when I visited with my friends at their house so I wouldn't be sitting there alone while everybody else was opening their presents. And the point is this, God's gifts for your life were not designed for you to, to discover alone. They were designed to be discovered in community. They were designed to be discovered in fellowship. They are emerging from community. That's how you discover them. And so I want to encourage you, plug into community here in any way that you can. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, thank you this morning for this encouraging word. We are encouraged and we're blessed that you have given us so much, lavished upon us so much. And we praise you for that. And Lord, I just pray every person in the room, every person who has listened to this message would be inspired and motivated to discover what it is that you have dropped down in their hearts, what it is that you have filled their lives with so that they can serve and build up the body for the common good. And I pray for that. And Lord, this morning as we come to the communion table, we are reminded that we're here to discern the body. We're here to discern the body. The scripture says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes, and then he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to commemorate me. And Lord, we remember your body today. We remember your physical body which was broken and your blood shed on our behalf. And we also remember the body of Christ. The body of Christ that that you are raising up. The body of Christ that you are equipping. The body of Christ that you've gifted with these gifts of the Spirit. And we thank you for that today.